Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Melissa Stutter, and this is Tavera Talk, the Blog Talk Radio show for Tavera, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. We're so happy that you've joined us tonight, and we invite you to also join our online community at www.tiferetjournal.com. There, you can interact with other members, read their writings, post your own writings, and subscribe to the journal. Our interview tonight is with poet, writer, and activist Marge Piercy, author of 18 volumes of poetry, several nonfiction books, and 17 novels. Piercy has been the recipient of four honorary doctorate degrees and has taught lectured and performed her work at over 400 universities around the world. As well, she's been a featured writer on Bill Moyer's PBS special, Prairie Home Companion, Fresh Air, The Today Show, and many radio programs nationwide, including Air America and Oprah and Friends. And her poems are read frequently on Garrison Keillor's The Writer's Almanac. Deeply engaged with life on a multitude of levels, Piercy has advocated for human rights as a key player in many of the major political battles of our time and has written passionately about themes essential to the progress of humanity. She has been and continues to be a bright lamp, her life and her writing guiding others to live and write with passion, courage, authenticity, and conviction. This evening, we'll be discussing the many facets of Piercy's work, with an emphasis on The Hunger Moon, New and Selected Poems, a collection that the Christian Science Monitor says deserves to be read over and over because the poems work together beautifully and demonstrate the poet's considerable talent and skill, reminding readers why Marge Piercy is a literary icon whose work and career are unmatched. Good evening, Marge. How are you tonight? Fine. How are you? Oh, I'm doing very well. I wanted to congratulate you on the release of the Hunger Moon paperback. Uh, I understand it just came out a couple of days ago. Exactly. Oh, wonderful. So this is your new and selected poems, and I wanted to see if you would start by telling us about the process of making the selections and if it taught you anything about yourself and your evolution as a poet. Uh, The choosing... Oh, a very small, limited number of poems from each book is difficult. And I always screw up to some degree. Like I realized when the book came out, I'd left out a poem that I'm very fond of and read at most readings. It happens every time. I can imagine. So it it must be a very difficult process, yes, I can imagine. And you have so much work, actually. This is only from eight of your books from 1980 to 2010, and and you have like 17 collections, correct? Yeah, there was a previous uh, uh, selected poems, Circles on the Water, that's now in its something like 17th printing or something, uh, which covers the books before that through 1980. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, one of the things I love about the book is that you included states of composition in the back, and it was so much fun to read the poems and then look at the the dates of composition and see how that all lined up. And I thought it was interesting. It was 
some of them were kind of like bank checks out of sequence, you know. <laughs> I was like, wow, how did that one end up there? So, well, because um, when you put together a book, there's a shape to a book, and you don't want too much of any one type of poem. So you may leave out one that is just as good as the ones you put in because you don't want one more love poem, one more uh, Jewish poem, one more political poem. It's just, it would be unbalanced. So you put it aside, and in the next volume, you put it in. Wow. Wow, that's great. I know a lot of our listeners are writers and poets, and and we love to hear about stuff like that. You know, it's instructive. (laughs) It's very important. It's very important to shape a book so that you start strong and end strong Mm -hmm. and that it has some meaningful structure that guides the, the reader through it. It's the same when you're, when you put together a reading, you shape the reading. Wow, thank you. <laughs> well, you really have to. If you do a lot of intense poems, you want to do a funny poem to release some tension. You uh, can't do too many love poems in a row where people start thinking about their own lives and don't listen to you. Uh, <laughs> you learn these things. So you, you structure a reading carefully and you structure a book carefully in different ways. Well, and you know what's interesting is that you, you structured the books initially, the individual books, and then you have to go in and restructure them as a new book. So, oh you, inter- yeah, you don't follow the same order you did in the in the original books because you're you're building a new structure. So, right. So the first poem, uh, the poems don't go in the order they they'd be in the original books. Right. Right. Well, I love the way you structured it, and I felt like as I was reading it, I could see kind of an evolution um, of just all kinds of things, attitudes towards love and um, spiritual evolution. And I I felt like it had a lot to do with the way you ordered the poems, obviously. And um, also, I, it felt like the metaphors and the imagery sort of reflected patterns and changes. And so I really liked the way you did that. It was beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I know that you said that you had to discontinue your formal education after your master's degree so you could write the kind of poems you wanted to write. And, and the I kind of fiction, especially. And oh. the fiction also. Okay, great. Um, how did your writing change then after you were no longer part of the academic scene? Uh, right around the time I left academia, Uh, I heard Allen Ginsberg read, and that was a revelation, not because I wanted to write like a big poet or like him, but because (laughs) he wrote out of his own life uh, Mm. with a full, both about his sexuality, his politics, his background, his family, and a lot of academia at the time uh, sponsored a sort of very tight, almost impersonal, and somewhat obscure poetry, much as it tends to do now. Mm. Uh, and he, he, I felt that hearing him liberated me to write from myself. Not to write like him, but to write like me. Mm, that's the best kind of teacher, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I mean, I know he wasn't actually your teacher in a classroom, but what I'm saying is that his work 
um, taught you how to write like yourself instead of how to write no, like No, not now? really. It just told me I could write like myself. It didn't show oh, me how to do it because he writes very different sort of poetry than I do. But yeah, it Diana. it gave it it sort of showed me that you could write honestly out of yourself. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that people love so much about your work is that it it does have that um honesty, that truth. And um you know, could you speak to that a little bit about um not just in your poetry but also I read your memoir recently and was really, really taken with it and uh, just the absolute feeling of honesty and truth. And I know you said at the end that, that there was no way you could have been comprehensive because you can't write a whole life, but um, it just felt like you had made such an attempt to be as comprehensive as possible. And um, Well, I wasn't see- comprehensive. I was honest. No, mm-hmm. there's, there's an awful lot of my political activities that aren't in there. Okay. <laughs> and friendships there aren't the in in unless they were core relationships they're not in there. Right. No, it's right. A, no attempt it's a memoir. There's no attempt to be comprehensive. Just very honest about that part of my life that I'm writing about. Okay, okay, I understand. Um so could you talk a little bit about that, about what um it what it provides to people and um, what it means to write about one's life so honestly in memoir and in poetry? Well, poetry is different because no one can tell whether you're writing about your own life or somebody else's life. It doesn't really make any difference. Uh, You know, the poem is an artifact and it works or it doesn't work. And it doesn't matter whether the poem... uh, the I in the poem or the person the persona in the poem is you or somebody else you've known or you're using a mask or you're dealing with historical and mythological characters. Hmm. Okay. Um so it's a different kind of truth then, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Um okay, well what do you think makes a great poem? Uh, a poem is is composed of sounds and silences. Uh, it makes use of imagery. When it's functioning, it, it works on many parts of your brain. It works on the very primitive brain uh, that recognizes rhythms. It works on the in a sort of gestalt manner. Uh, in grasping whole imagery. It has a meaning, so it has a concrete meaning as well. Uh, it operates through uh, in, through images which may be uh, very simple or may be uh, very, very uh, dis- dissonant or surrealistic, but should have an always in some element of surprise to them so that the reader says, ah, yeah. Mm, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, well, I would love to hear you read some of your poems for us, and I know you've prepared some wonderful poems with Jewish themes. Um, so before you begin, I would like to let our listeners know that your religious poems are often read aloud at Jewish life cycle events and are also reprinted in additional readings anthologies used to supplement non-Orthodox Jewish prayer books. Um, so would you read some poems for us? 
Sure. <clears throat> this is called Working at It. So much in Tanakh is a mixed bag, a tangled message. Eliyahu and Elisha come to the Jordan. The elder prophet strikes the water and parts it for them. He makes a safe, dry road through what would drown them. We all try to do that for those we cherish. Elisha resists show, fiery horses and chariots, and witnesses the whirlwind, and is rewarded with Eliyahu's spiritual power. Now he too can part the waters. We hope for gifts our mentors have tried to teach us to carry on. When he travels, boys mock his bald head and he sends bears to savage 42 children. What can I learn from this to take myself seriously into violence? We pick and choose what to cherish of those tales, our minds prodding them for spiritual sense so we can part the dangerous waters of our time to cross our Jordans. Hmm. And uh, another one? Oh, yes, please. On Shabbat, she dances in the candle flames. How we danced then, you can imagine, my grandmother said. We danced till we were dizzy. We danced till the room spun like a dreidel. We danced ourselves drunk and giddy. We danced till we fell panting. We were poor, my grandmother said. A few potatoes, some half-rotten beans, greens from the hedgerow. Then on Shabbat we ate a chicken. The candles shone on the golden skin. We drank sweet wine and flew up to the ceiling. How I loved him, you can't imagine, my grandmother said. He was from St. Petersburg. My father could scarcely believe he was a Jew. He dressed so fine. His eyes burned when he looked at me. He quoted Pushkin instead of Mishnah. Nine languages until the Tsar wanted him in the army where Jews went off but never returned. My father married us from his deathbed. We escaped under a load of straw. You can imagine. We were frightened mice. Eleven children I bore, my grandmother said. Nine who grew up, four who died before me. Now I sing in your ear. <clears throat> when you pray, I stand beside you. Elijah's cup at the Seder table is for me who cooked and never sat down. Now I sit enthroned on your computer. I am the queen of dust mop tales. I preside over your memory, lighting candles that summon the dead. I touch your lids, and while you sleep and when you wake, you imagine me. Oh, you're such an amazing reader. Would you read one more for us, a candle and a glass? Oh, sure. Oh, thank have you. Several here. People. Okay, candle and a glass. That's getting on to that time of year. My mother's yard site is the first night of Hanukkah. Okay, thank you. When you died, it was time to light the first candle of the eighth. The dark tidal shifts of the Jewish calendar of waters and the moon that grows like a belly and starves like a rabbit in winter have carried that holiday forward and back since then. I light only your candle at sunset as the red wax of the sun melts into the rumpled waters of the bay. 
The ancient words pass like cold water out of stone over my tongue as I say Kaddish. Then I am silent and the twilight drifts in on skeins of unraveling woolly snow blowing over the hill dark with pitch pines. I have a moment of missing that pierces my brain like sugar stabbing a cavity to the nerve lights its burning wire. Grandmother Hannah comes to me at Pesach when I'm lighting the Shabbat candles. The sweet wine in the cup has her breath. The challah is braided like her long, long hair. She smiles vaguely, nods, and it's gone like a savor passing. You come oftener when I am putting up pears or tomatoes, baking apple cake. You are in my throat laughing or in my eyes. When someone dies, it's the unspoken words that spoil in the mind and ferment to wine and to vinegar. I obey you still going out in the sawtooth wind to feed the birds you protected. When I lie in the arms of my love, I know how you climb like a pea-vine twining, lush, grasping for the sun toward love, and always you were pinched back, denied. It's a little low light the yardside candle makes. You couldn't read by it or even warm your hands. So the dead are with us only as the scent of fresh coffee, of cinnamon, of pansies and sights the nose and then fades with us as a small candle burns in its glass. We lose and go on losing as long as we live. A little winter, no spring can melt. Oh, I feel like I'm in a spell. You're such an amazing reader. And, you know, I love the poems on the page, but hearing you read them is just magical. So thank you for doing that for us. Let me read Matzah, because that's fun. Okay. okay <laughs> this is part of, of my Haggadah. There's poems for every item on the, well, for on the Seder plate and many other things. You know, I have a book out, uh, Pesach for the Rest of Us. Matzah. Flat you are as a doormat and is homely. No crust, no glaze. You lack a cosmetic glow. You break with a snap. You are dry as a twig split from an oak in midwinter. You are bumpy as a mud basin in a drought, square as a slab of pavement. You have no inside to hide raisins or seeds. You are pale as a full moon pocked with craters. What we see is what we get, honest, plain, dry, shining with nostalgia as if baked with light instead of heat, the bread of flight and haste in the mouth you promise home. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love the ending, the bread of flight and haste and home. Wow. Thank you. Um you know, as you were reading the poems, I started thinking about the story of how you came to learn Hebrew, and I wanted to see if you could tell our listeners about that. Oh, I, I uh, said Kaddish for my mother. My brother wouldn't and didn't. So I said it for her, but I was going blobbity blobbity blob because I'd <laughs> never learned Hebrew. Uh my background is orthodox, so my brother had a 
uh, bar mitzvah, but I never had a bat mitzvah. So I began to start. I wanted to know what I was saying. I couldn't stand that I didn't know what I was saying. So I started studying Hebrew. And when I was 50, I was bat mitzvahed finally. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So also you you founded a group, um, People of the Sea, is that correct? Uh, Am Hayam, yeah, it's still going. Uh, oh. We were one of the people who founded it and ran it for the first 10 years. Wow. Would you tell us a little bit about that? It's, it just was started on the Outer Cape in order to further to be away uh for there to be Hebrew classes and for the people to have be able to have communal celebrations and for there to be able to be bar and bat mitzvahs for the children who grew up out here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. That's so the wonderful. The first event we did was a Purim celebration, and we thought, well, maybe we'll get 20 people. <laughs> well, 85 people came. Wow. <laughs> and we re- we suddenly realized we were going to fulfill a need, that there were more Jews here than we realized, and that they wanted something. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, you know, you, you talked in your memoir about how the diversity of people you're in contact with has contributed to your work's relatability. And I wanted to see if you could elaborate on that a little bit and maybe give us an example or two, if you can think of one off the top of your head. (laughs) Well, a lot of writers now, in order to make a living, uh, spend their life in universities or they go from one writer's colony to another. Uh, The problem with that is that that's a very limited set of people you're interacting with. I opted out of the university, though I, you know, I do gigs in them, I do workshops, I do once in a while I'll teach something, but that's not my life. Uh, I think it really helps to be out of that because I meet a whole lot of different people. And living in a village, I interact with people who are in all kinds of walks of life. Yes, I know doctors, yes, I know lawyers. Uh, yes, I know academics, but I also am friends with people who fish for a living or who raise shellfish or who are carpenters, uh, who are house painters, people who do all kinds of things. So it's I think it's a real advantage. I've had a lot more living under my belt than a lot of writers, and I think it enriches my work. I totally agree, and um, I think, you know, one of the things that that really impresses me about you is that, um, you know, with with all of this living, it's like you've you've had so much, you know, pain and joy and love and suffering and so much, and still you stay so open with your writing and with your life, and um, I hope it's not too personal, but I wanted to ask, how do you do that? How do you stay so open with your writing? I think it's a spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, <clears throat> you know, religions have instructions for learning to meditate, for learning and for paying attention and for being in the moment and for being open. Yes, yes. 
Okay. Well, that's great. Thank you. Um, do you feel that that also, um, talking about meditating and being in the moment and, and all of that, do you feel that that also strengthens your work? Because one of the things that I love about your poetry in particular is that it it feels always that you're so deeply connected to the subject matter. And, and I know people talk a lot about how prolific you are, and you are, and that's so impressive, too. But the thing that really, really gets me is just how... The reason uh, I'm what they call prolific is that I didn't go the academic route. <laughs> uh, I don't work at a university. I work at my writing. That, that right. was a choice to give up security in order to be able to do the work I needed to do. So I never have financial security, but I have the ability to write uh, much more of the time than if I was teaching. Yes, yes, and it's a choice. You know, we all make these choices, and um, and I think a lot of us are really happy that you made that one, <laughs> and we have so much writing from you. Um, but I know we don't have a lot of time left, so there's something that I really wanted to ask you about um, your metaphor and your metaphors and images. They're just so powerful, and um, you don't seem to ever get in a rut like a lot of poets do, of just kind of using the same old images and metaphors. And, well, um, I do repeat sometimes. I catch myself repeating sometimes. I think everybody well, who writes a lot does. You know what you do, but it's more in a way of developing a motif. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, like when you like the eggs, you've got eggs and eggshells a lot um, through your poems. But each time that you use it, it's different. I mean, you know, one time it's blue eggs of joy, and another time it's, um, you know, something like little moldy eggs of reports and. Um, so I'm just wondering if you have any any tricks about not tricks, but you know any any advice on how to. The best present you can give a poet is our guides, like Peterson's Guide to the Birds, uh, the mm. Guide to Wildflowers, the Guide to Bushes and Trees, the Guide to Rocks, the Guide to Tracks and Scat. The, all these things. The more that you pay attention to the world around you, the more sources of metaphor and imagery you have, the more that they are in you, uh, the more attention you pay to anything. There are no poetic subjects. There are just subjects. There are just things you've paid enough attention to. Uh, and so it is with metaphor. The more curious you are, the more that you learn. Science is a very rich source of metaphor, for instance, often very fresh. Uh, everything you pay attention to uh, gives you much richer imagery. Oh, my gosh, I love that. I'm writing it down as you speak, and I'm sure a lot of other people are, too. I love that. There are no poetic subjects, just things that you've paid enough attention to. What what an amazing statement and amazing advice. Um, so, And I know it, it must feel like, for a lot of people who just want to be sitting in front of their computers writing, it, it might feel almost painful to force themselves to go out and live. Um, but, you know, the, the writing and the living are so interlinked, and I think your writing is such a perfect, perfect example of that and model of that. So um, what, what are the things that inspire you the most? 
Oh, everything from what's on what's on the evening news to what I read to my friends to my cats to my um my partner to the garden to the weather to everything that's going on to my wow. own past to my own childhood to wow. you know health and illnesses to the death of friends etc yeah everything okay. hello Yes, yes, I, I didn't want to interrupt you. I thought you were oh. still speaking. Sorry. Okay, well, we're just about to run out of time, so um, I'd love it if you could tell us um, if there's anything coming up other than the release of your book that you'd like to announce and also what your website address is so that people can follow you online. com. I do a weekly blog that's up on the website. 